I think if we imagine a future that's the way we would like it to be, that can give us a goal to set for. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is science fiction author A.R.K. Watson. She started writing with both arms and braces as a broke college student. Her love of the church and the written word drove her to start CatholicReads.com, a website aimed at popularizing quality Catholic books. She is an American living abroad in South Korea, a world traveler, and an absolute and unrepentant nerd. Her debut publication, The Dunes, won an honorary mention in the Writers of the Future contest, which in the past has discovered such sci-fi and fantasy greats as Orson Scott Card and Brandon Sanderson. Her sci-fi murder mystery, The Vines of Mars, earned her a place in Yale's Summer Creative Writing Workshop. Here's a brief summary of The Vines of Mars for you. At a colony on Mars in the future, Tomas misses his sister. Maria is presumed dead after going missing on a windswept planet over a decade ago. But a stranger appears and makes him question everything he knows, from the man-eating vines in the forest to his sister's disappearance. He will put everything on the line, including his marriage and family, in order to learn the truth. There is a murderer within their tight-knit community and he aims to expose them. ARK, I'd like to give you an opportunity to just share with us a piece of literature that really has changed things for you. So a piece of literature that changed me, I think, was The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. It was the first science fiction book that I ever read. Um, remains one of my favorites and started a far deeper obsession than anyone ever expected. Um, there's this uh, quote by Ray Bradbury from Zen and the Art of Writing, which is also a great book uh, for artists in general, not just writers. Uh, I have never listened to anyone who criticized my taste in space travel, sideshows, or gorillas. When this occurs, I pack up my dinosaurs and leave the room. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know who I think of immediately when you read that? Who? Is Wash. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That it just immediately takes me to Serenity and packing up your dinosaurs. And that just warms my little nerdy heart. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about this quote, because there's a little bit to unpack there. I mean, it's it's comedic, but at the same time, it's showing that he kind of seemed to know what his strengths were. Where, where were you in your life when you encountered this? I was, um, I think I was in high school and it was just one of the quotes that I heard by him and it didn't really strike me at the time. But then as I've moved into adulthood and been trying to find my own voice in my writing and trying to find, you know, just like how a job <laughs> and my place in the world it's come back to me again and again that, you know, you aren't in charge of other people's opinions about you. Uh, you're in charge of your opinion about yourself. And 
that might be based on some things that other people find absurd or even offensive but it's it's about what you what you can do in your life that makes you respect yourself that makes you uh happy but not like hedonistically happy but but um yeah content with yourself and uh following your artistic passions is part of that um but also just having integrity in all levels of your life so authenticity yeah yeah authenticity in regards to your identity and your creative pursuits the whole shebang huh I find it interesting that you encountered it in high school, but it, it, it's worked on you over the years and just keeps coming back to you. I, Mm. it it surprises me how much art can do that, that it can impact over time and it can take time to chew on. I know that was my experience with um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia Mm. that I read them in the second grade and then listened to the audio books with my kids and, completely different experience or even Lord of the Rings did the same thing for me that I loved Lord of the Rings when I was a kid and Gandalf was my hero but reading it as an adult um and turning me into a deeper nerd (laughs) that was important and so how how has this quote helped you to live this out like what kind of boundaries do you think you've had to cross or self-realizations you've had well i think especially with um artistic endeavors i think it it shows my attitude towards publishing in general i went to this fancy conference once where we got to meet a lot of publishers and make a lot of connections and it was really a great conference but there was also a lot of undercurrents of anti-religious snobbery, uh, anti-science fiction snobbery too. Although I will say that most of that uh, seemed to come from the less professional members. And I was young and I was trying to find my voice and I was a new convert, which uh, was another wrench in the works because, you know, they there's this mantra to like write what you know to write uh, where you come from. And when you come from the Bible Belt and Catholics are less than 3% of the population and you're coming to terms with some deeply um, ingrained prejudice and you're trying to throw that off, you don't really want to write in that voice. Like you're trying to find your own voice now uh, apart from that. And so it, it drove me to decide that I wanted to independently publish, at least at the start. Uh, I might traditionally publish in the future, um, but I wanted to have full control to decide what I wanted to write and how I wanted to write it. And I also wanted to learn the industry inside and out, and any publishing forces you to do that um, so that when or if I do traditionally publish, I'll understand, I'll know what the publishers are doing, what they're going through, so that I can be an effective partner as well, but also so I don't get like conned or something. So the experience at that conference just really forced 
finding your voice to the front for you then. Yeah, it was it was very much like, okay, I need to pack up my dinosaurs and go sort of situation. Like, this isn't bad. This is just not where I want to be right now. And where were you at in the writing and publishing process when you went to that conference? I was very, very beginning. I was actually had, I wasn't even done writing The Vines of Mars. I was, I had a couple of chapters. At the time, I thought one character was going to be the point of view. And then after that, because of that conference, I realized that Tomas uh, was going to be the point of view character, not his mother. But uh, yeah, so it was, it was pretty early in the process. Mm-hmm. That must have really been an opportunity, though, because it allowed it, if I'm understanding correctly, for it to kind of shape your creative process, and that it probably removed some barriers from you and some conventions, oh, yeah. for lack of a better word. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't regret going. And uh, it was the Yale Writers Conference. It's and if anyone has an opportunity to go to that, I highly recommend it. The teachers were excellent. And the teachers, I will say, were not the source of any of the snobbery that I experienced. So, and I, I like, I learned a lot. I do not think that I would have been able to figure out how to write the book before going. I could write a good scene, but figuring out the structure was really helpful. Very fine. Was this conference strictly for fiction or was it for all writing? Uh, it was for all writing. They had um, a two, it was like a, a two week course. The first week was more literary, but I think it had like, like they were trying, like, so that there we had like more memoirs and nonfiction as well as fiction, but like definitely the, the vibe was we were trying to write the next great American novel. Uh, and me, they're talking about robots and aliens. They were like, what? And I was like, but that can be the next great American novel. I think Martian Chronicles is one of the greatest American novels. And then the second week was more focused on genre fiction. Um, so there was less snobbery there, of course. Um, but I think that, that uh, the course, the course selection was less intensive strangely enough. But you know, I, when I went into there the first week, uh, and a lot of my critique partners were like, Oh, we don't read sci fi, how do we give you feedback? And I was like, I'm not looking for feedback on the sci fi parts, I'm looking for feedback on the dialogue and the characters and the pacing and all the stuff that's universal to stories. So. And that's one of the things that's so interesting, as I'm working on my own novel is you realize how many things in the structure of a story you take for granted, like all of those things that you named. As a reader, you just kind of take them for granted as the undercurrent of the story. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, well, how do I evaluate plots or, but the pacing and the characters and all of that, as a reader, you take for granted until it's your responsibility as a writer to make it come to life and make it compelling. So what brought you around to writing fiction and then science fiction? Uh, I couldn't not for as long as I've wanted to write books. Um, it's I've wanted to write fiction. I will say historical fiction was actually my first love. Uh, and then I discovered science fiction. And I think what really interests me about science fiction is uh it's driven by questions, at least the, the sci-fi I like. And that also ties into me integrating my Catholic faith into my identity as an artist. Um, 
do I write fiction that's meant to convert people to Catholicism or do I write something more covert? And I found that for me, writing fiction is a kind of a spiritual meditation. It's, it's, it's a way that I grow personally and it's driven by questions I have about the faith. How, how would the church react to, uh, a sentient alien asking for baptism. Uh, what would that mean? Uh, would it mean the same thing? Or would it would it be something different? And I think, too, I'm actually influenced by a lot of atheist sci-fi writers that I grew up reading. Um, I love Isaac Asimov. Uh, he's typically very negative about religion. Any religious characters in his books are, like, stupid or villainous. But... That part of his books was always just very kind of secondary. What what made people come back to keep reading him and what made him keep writing was questions he had, right? So he developed the three laws of robotics and he a lot of his stories that I love are kind of breaking these three laws apart and saying, hey, are there exceptions to them? Are there ways that there could be perceived exceptions to them? And it was driven by questions he had about like, The logic of morality, I think, is what's really cool about his robots. His robots are perfectly logical beings, which he seems to posit that they are moral, that that morality is logical. But people mistrust, in his world, sometimes mistrust robots and second-guess them. And so they often are struggling to do good um, despite people's misunderstandings. And his questions about like how would that play out and how would they win our trust? And yeah, it's it's the questions he had about morality and intelligence and sentience that make his work eternal. And and so similarly, my work is driven by questions I have, and I'll make guesses and stuff. It seems almost like the questions that you're asking could only exist in a fictional world. Not that they are purely fiction and that they are not possibilities, but that that you couldn't explore these ideas in a non-fiction setting. I think you could. Uh, it would just take a different symbolic imagination. Um, I think you could, could explore it in other genres as well. Um, but there's something about positing it in science fiction, kind of. So the difference I've heard between science fiction and fantasy is Science fiction is like, this could happen. This could be possible. And fantasy is more about the past of this could have happened. Or maybe it it didn't happen at all. Maybe it's just something completely separate. But there's something about the the immediate relevancy of positing it as a possible future for us that I think kind of raises the stakes a little bit as a reader. I can see that. I can see that. And I like the idea of questioning, especially when you look at the name science fiction, when you really look at science as the art of observation and then asking questions about it. You look at Star Trek and how many of the technologies that were imagined for the TV series ended up being scientific reality within just a couple of decades, which is pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. Well, I think it's because of things like Star Trek, because we were imagining handheld devices that we could talk to over long distances that we're like, other people were like, Hey, let's figure out if we can do that. Um, The way we imagine the future has a moral 
impact on the world. I think if we imagine a future that's the way we would like it to be, that can give us a goal to set for. And you can also have dystopian, which also is like, let's not do this. But you need a balance of, of both, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. So that we can both strive to and avoid <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. So if you could bring to life any technology or experience from the Vines of Mars, your novel, what would that be? I would love to go to uh, an alien colony. I wouldn't really want to meet the Vines in my first book because it probably would die. Probably hurt. Um, (laughs) But I would love to just walk around the colony. And I like, I researched a lot about uh, current theories of terraformation. So I kind of have two terraforming dynamics going on on Mars. So you have the humans who are trying to terraform Mars using a lot of theoretical or currently existing technology. And you have the vines, which are a alien plant, which is not like sentient the way we are sentient, but it is terraforming Mars for its own self. And so you end up in this sort of like symbiosis, but also this war between these two species and that the vines are creating a lot of the oxygen that gave humans the opportunity to get out of domes before I had like, I hint that they had like mining colonies, like underground bubble dome stuff, but it was, it was very small. Um, The presence of the vines uh, being able to take all that carbon dioxide and the Martian atmosphere and convert actually start converting it to oxygen gives humans that opportunity to get out of the domes and start kickstarting their terraformation. So they depend upon each other because uh, the humans are also bringing a lot of the water and are they're the source, <laughs> 99.9% water of a lot of what the vines needs, but, uh, but they also don't have, they have competing interests. I forget I was cycling back to your question now and I forgot what it was. No, totally fine. I was saying, I was asking what, what technology or experience from your book would you okay, want? Yeah. To yeah. Have? So I, I find the vines interesting, but I wouldn't want to actually go walk around in the forest cause I wouldn't survive. Um, but I'd love to walk around, uh, and see, um, like the ice, the ice blackeners and, um, to see like the labs where they're trying to integrate fungus and insects into Martian soil. So you have all of these story ideas, right? What things do you do to help bring them to life from your mind out onto the paper? Oh, I free write. Write drunk, edit sober. I think it's a good, it's good advice. Or at least like write buzzed, don't actually write drunk. What I mean is get out of your, do what you need to do to get out of your own insecurities. And I've been to writing sprints where we have like taken a shot and written 500 words. Um, But not everybody can do that safely. So uh, there's a tool called uh, write or die. It's kind of buggy. um, But if you use the online version, not the desktop version, um, or uh, it's, it's, it's all right. So it, it has parameters where you set a time limit and, and like a word goal and um, like generally how fast you want to type and you press go. 
and you have to start typing. And if you stop typing, bad things will happen. So in the easy setting, what will happen is like if you stop typing, the screen around the text will go from white to pink to pinker to fuchsia to red. And then it'll go really loud. So if you're in a cafe, it's really like embarrassing. You have to keep typing to get the sound to go away. And uh, if you're on the hardest setting and you stop typing too long, it'll start deleting words and letters uh, from your text. Well, that's right or death right there. Yeah, it's very right or die, but it's good for getting you out of your head and just getting the words on the page. Because I think once you have something on the page, it's it's easier to go back and edit it. It's less intimidating, at least for me, than to just be staring at that that white space and that blinking cursor, you know. And then there's also a lot of, you know, the classical tools. I think uh, I'm a bit of a mix of plotter and pantser uh, for writing with or without an outline. But I do find it, whenever I'm stuck, useful to look up a different outlining tool a different plot structure and just fiddle with it and play with it and see what my story would look like in that structure and if I like it or not. That's a really fascinating idea. I never considered plugging it into another format, essentially, another framework. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the three, the classic three-act structure, but there's also lots of other stuff out there. Haig's Six Stages is really good. It's very good for focusing on character growth. The Stanwell's seven-point plot uh, is re- also really good if you're a pantser or if you're, or if you have like a couple of disconnected scenes, but you don't really know where to go from there. Orson Scott Card's uh, Mice Quotient is really good for figuring out your endings and beginnings. So if you have an ending, but you don't have a beginning, or if you have a beginning, but not an ending which uh, a lot of pantsers will do. They'll have like a really good beginning, but they don't know where it ends. This one's hard to find, but I think there's like one YouTube series on it. Uh, Kisho Tenketsu. It's the plot structure that uh, comes out of Japan. So if you're, if you're an anime fan, if you like Studio Ghibli movies, it's really neat to uh, look at their structure, which is a four-part structure. That sounds fascinating to me. Our family... For for the kid-appropriate movies, our family are hardcore Ghibli fans. Um, we actually have a cat named Soot Gremlin. Um, so what can I say? Yeah, uh, um, My Neighbor Totoro and The Secret Life of Arietti mm-hmm. are favorite movies for family movie night up in this joint. Yeah, excellent. Although I can tell you grew up with the second, the second version because you call them Soot Gremlins and not Dust Bunnies. <laughs> And then the 90s version, it was Dust Buddy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had, in some ways, I had a late introduction to anime. When I was in college, I, I had a late introduction to Ghibli, let's mm-hmm. say. When I was in college, we watched, I did watch Spirited Away back then, which I do know is Ghibli. But we also watched like Do Megalopolis and uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Those are the ones I remember. I went to college a day or two ago, so it's been a while. And in between then and now, I was also in the army for five years. So the memory is shot. Yeah, no, I understand. I I came to anime late as well. And and for me, I'm glad that we have those kind of gentler stories that I'm experiencing through my children's eyes. And it's especially amazing with my neighbor Totoro is we have two little girls. 
that are about the same distance in age as May and Satsuki from My Neighbor Totoro and watching Mm -hmm. their interactions together and their body language and their movement and the things that interest them. It's you experience it through the wonder of the child's eyes, this fairy tale story. But at the same time, I'm experiencing through the parent's eyes Mm -hmm. simultaneously. And it just good stories can awaken such wonder. It's not that it, it's not that the I was listening to something. It was with Malcolm Geit at Hutchmoot, um, and he was talking about twentieth century's authors that talked about reawakening the imagination and recognizing that there will never be. I forget who said the quote, so you have to forgive me. There will never be a lack of wonders in the world, but we do suffer from a lack of wonder. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about fiction with people is to reawaken the wonder, yeah, to recognize the magnificence of the world that we live in, whether we're recognizing it in terraforming Mars, forming community, learning about cultures that are different than you, life experiences different than you. So I figure it's okay to be a nerd <laughs> because we get to experience all this cool stuff. Yeah. I share that about how this movie impacted me. What what impact do you want your art, your literature, your books and short stories to have on people? I want people to not be afraid, but also to have a little heebie-jeebies. So in my – I've dabbled a little bit in horror, and and my aliens are certainly quite scary. Alien invasion is a scary thing. But – also, it's beautiful and wondrous and awe-inspiring. And the fear is not... It's not that I want to say bad things don't happen. Bad things are going to happen in my stories. But it doesn't end there. Your whole world might be changed more than you could ever imagine. And it's terrifying. But it's also wondrous. Yeah, that's kind of a theme in like all my, I'm finding in all my writing. As, as I, I tackle scary things, but I also talk about how they're not what we think they are. And they're certainly not the end of the story. No, no. You people talk about like, oh, if we uh, visit an alien world, you know, our, our microbiome, the, the, the nutrients we need in our body, it's going to be different. Is it just going to be war and genocide between our environment and theirs? Um, maybe, probably to a, you know, a certain degree. Yeah. But also nature isn't just war. It's also integration and symbiosis. And that's going to change us. You know, you think when, you know, Europeans came to the new world, there was a lot of plague and death and destruction. But there was also a lot of people's bodies change, like having horses in the U.S. changed Native American cultures drastically and gave them gave some of them kind of a, a resurgent golden age um, before a darker time. And, and in like places as far as China, suddenly you had an influx of potatoes and corn and uh, all these high energy food resources that they hadn't had before. And people were able, physically able to do things that they hadn't been able to before. So it's scary, but it's also good. 
So it gives us a little bit of strength when we say, but change is hard. Yes, it is. It makes a wonderful story and conflict resource. We like it in everything except our own lives. And then we gripe and complain. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think this too, this is where it's it's good for me, and my spiritual growth, because it, it writing reminds me of that. I've found that I've definitely had to do a significant amount of introspection in my writing. And it's not always comfortable for myself. Because nope. I start writing a character and then I realize, oh, yeah, their faults, the reason they're so easy to write is because they're <laughs> mine. <laughs> Have yeah. you had that experience as well? I have. Um, I've also had kind of a greater understanding of of uh, my family history as well, writing characters. It's funny to, uh, there was a little discussion once amongst friends and family when my book came out of like, oh, which character is she? And like people would guess. And I was like, really, they're all of them. Because um, <laughs> I wrote them all and they're all in my head. Um, yeah, I I, one of the themes in my book is uh, kind of a generational trauma. You know, this is a colony that is going through some very traumatic experiences um, in this, this struggle with this alien force, and many members die and people mourn them. But also, it is a normal in human small town. I, you find out pretty early in the book that in the previous generation, one of the teachers was sexually abusing his students. And these students are all ad adults now. And it's kind of this secret, but not secret thing that, that a lot of them are survivors of that abuse. Um, and that's affected them and their children, their families. I don't get graphic or, or show uh, rape, but I talk about the community effects of that. Um, and I had a like a great grandmother who was a victim of abuse of that abuse. Writing this story was, I think, part of me understanding like that was like great grandmother, right? But it does affect your family. It does affect how you cope with things. Well, and sadly, with the statistics in uh, our modern culture, there are so many people who are victims of sexual violence, and to have that recognized. And that this isn't something you can just push down again and again and again and not have an impact mm -hmm. on you and your family, as you were saying, generationally, but also society at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You handle it in a graceful way. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it is a tough situation. It is a tough situation. But at the same time, one of the things I see in fiction is a means of encountering ideas that are hard and giving us time to chew on them without chewing on the people that they happen to, mm -hmm. that we can engage with these fictional characters and yeah. kind of work through our emotions and our thoughts about these experiences and come out on the other end with more empathy. And we can do it at our own pace, which is so much different than working with an independent interpersonal relationship mm -hmm. because that person's feelings and thoughts and experiences need to be examined, not under a microscope because they're a human being, but in the here and the now, that their emotions are being experienced in the present. And so mm -hmm. 
you don't necessarily have the time to catch up. Whereas if you engage it through fiction, you already have some of the mechanisms of engaging people. So I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I know we haven't talked a ton about your book, but I think we've given people a little bit of an idea that we're on Mars. There's vines and there's small town world on this extraplanetary colony and how you see science fiction is different. But what I'd like you to tell our listeners is how do you see your books as different within the genre of science fiction? I think where my books are different are, I, I love reading big robot and rocket ship engineering sci-fi, but I am more interested in writing science fiction that explores other branches of science. So biology, chemistry, entomology, my, you know, mycology, and, you know, yeah, just other branches of science besides big ship engineering. And I'm a gardener, so that's that's also a big part of that, too. I'm interested in showing... It's not even that I'm interested in showing. It's, 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 I cannot... It seems completely unrealistic to me to show a future story set in space where everyone is the same race and religion, or lack of. If you look at the diversity of scientists on the ISS... And the diversity of faiths on, represented on the ISS. It is it's simply unrealistic to me to not have stories of interpersonal, intercultural conflicts and friendships and partnerships and alliances and uh, irritations happening at the same time. You know, when we get to space, when when people remember, oh wait, this is actually realistic. Every country is going to want to have their representative person up on the first space colony. Whether or not they have a space industry or not, they're, they're going to want to be able to say, oh, yeah, we have this. We have this family. First, you know, Japanese family on Mars. First, uh, Arabic family on the moon. It's, I think it's just going to happen as a nat- nature of consequence. And there is this dialogue among fiction to include more diversity and diverse voices, which I think is very good, very positive. But I think what is missing is um, we also need religious diversity. So my main character is Catholic, but his neighbors have different faiths and different religions. And that is a source of some miscommunication a little bit in the story, because there are symbols that they use that... They don't always understand each other's symbols. But yeah, that that is both interesting to me and, and completely unrealistic to not include it. This science fiction where like everyone doesn't have, we've, oh, we've left religion behind sort of thing. Makes no sense. Uh, at the very least, humans would make up new religions. <laughs> this kind of in our myth-making, storytelling nature. But yeah, and I think it's important to show interracial but also interreligious friendships and relationships you know people talk about problems that interracial couples deal with nowadays on earth but there's almost no representation of couples of two different faiths in media which i think also comes with its own struggles but also comes with a lot of good and a lot of empathy and i think we can learn a lot um 
from stories that talk about that. One thing that really struck me about what you were just talking about is that you can tell it must be close to your heart when you talk about the first family, the first Japanese family to be on Mars, the first family to be on the moon. And it kind of breaks down another thing that you can often um, experience with adventure style fiction is that it's always about the individual. Not in space, because if it's the individual, and it was like that when we, when, when Europeans started coming to America, it was individual traders, but it was when families started to come to the new world that, that it was a sense of like, oh, this is something that we can build that is stable. It's not going away. We can send a man to the moon and then completely forget about space travel for the next 60 years. But if we send a family to the moon, we can't forget about it. I never thought about that. That's pretty cool. So I want to know what you've got in the works. Do you have sequels to Vines of Mars? What else are you working on right now? Uh, so I actually wrote the Vines of Mars as a standalone. Oh, I, I don't think we've really described It's a murder mystery. So the main character uh, thinks his sister died 10 years ago. Finds out not quite the case. But she has, he, when he finds her body, it's like 10 years older. So she's clearly been living, but she's also clearly just been murdered. So he's trying to dig through a lot of the colony secrets, a lot of the planet secrets. To figure that out. I kind of wrote it as a standalone story. But then when I was started to send it, people, people were like, what happens next? And I did leave like some things unresolved uh, or like vague, I guess. I wouldn't even say they're unresolved, vague, that I could elaborate on more. So I'm working on uh, sequels to The Vines of Mars, and I think it's going to kind of follow like a Sackett situation. Um, Louis Lemoore, if, if any, if there are any Western fans in your listeners, he had a series uh, that followed a Sackett, the Sackett family. Um, the first book was the first man from England coming to, or Sackett, coming to, from England to the U.S., and there were a few books following his explorations of the U.S., and then each book afterwards seemed to follow a different descendant of his. And it also kind of mirrored the expansion of um, American borders and the formation of like American identity through history, through this family. And so I'm kind of thinking that my story is going to be the same sort of thing, but it's going to be expansion of space through generations of a family. And also the development, because the, Humans are changed by their encounter with the vines, and the vines are changed by its encounter with the humans. And I'm also going to show the development of that alien species and what effects long-term it's going to have. And then more recently, um, probably early 2022, I'm going to have a novella come out called The Cyber Exorcist and The Mermaids of Mississippi. And it's taking like the worlds of Blade Runner and altered carbon and sticking a exorcist in there and um, kind of bringing questions of the paranormal to to those questions and i feel i think this, that really works for the cyberpunk genre because the cyberpunk genre has always been about questions of what is a soul what is human uh, if you can make something that imitates humans perfectly then what's the distinction is there a distinction so bringing kind of a doctor of souls into that universe is letting me explore those questions and, and ask them. 
That sounds fascinating. It really does. And how you broke down the cyberpunk genre for me, because I'll be honest with you, uh, clueless, other than like cyberpunk garb at a con, that's about the extent of my knowledge of cyberpunk culture. The Blade Runner is an excellent uh, introduction, but I know it's kind of a slow paced series of movies, so it's not everyone's cup of tea. But I was also really influenced by um, an anime called Ghost in the Shell. And that one was actually uh, a very traditional Buddhist take on cyber technology. So I'm, I'm living in East Asia now. And even today in East Asia, it's hard to get uh, organ transplants. So you think in Buddhism, the body that people are reincarnated, but they don't really in Buddhism, they don't really have like a dualistic distinction of body and soul. The body is the soul. And so that's why like reincarnation is the body getting changed and reformed, brought back as something that looks different. And so when you have an organ transplant, it turns a lot of people from Buddhist cultures off because it's like merging souls. Um, like stitching two souls together. It's like a weird, what does that do? That That's a that's a big theological conundrum for them. And so cyborg technology, where it's man merging with the machine, that brings in question of can the soul be, or can, can someone be reincarnated as a sentient computer? <laughs> and I love the series. Wonderful, wonderful series. Big fan of the TV show. There's a movie that's very famous. The movie's great too, but the standalone complex TV show is where it's at, guys. But I, I knew that I couldn't write. I, could, I wanted to write the next Ghost in the Shell, but I can't because I'm not Buddhist, but I'm Catholic and I can take, you know, all, so many of our rites as Catholics are very physical. Oil, incense, holy water. So what happens if you have a post-human who, who needs an exorcism or a baptism? And so a, a post-human is someone whose consciousness has been uploaded to like a Wi-Fi digital state. So essentially they're immortal and they can go anywhere into any technology uh, or anywhere there's a signal sort of thing. So that's the concept of a, a post-human and cyberpunk. Um, so if you have something that's their body is electricity, how, you can't baptize that. <laughs> you can't really put water on that. What do you do with that? So I don't know. I'm going to figure it out and posit some guesses in the series. So. Wow, you just blew my mind. I have a whole, I, I never even considered the theological ramifications of cyborg culture. So thank you. And and that's the thing is, like you said, all of these possibilities that when you limit a genre to an atheistic worldview, that you're actually limiting the creativity and the ideas and the what ifs that can happen in it. And that would be a real shame to happen in science fiction when, like you were saying, it all goes back to the questions mm -hmm. that by eliminating the spiritual whether you view it as reality or possibility, you've cut off so many ideas yeah. and so much conflict. I mean, it's great. Oh, yeah. And this is why I, you know, even as a Catholic and as someone who started like a whole business devoted Catholic literature, I also want more Buddhist and Jewish and Muslim and other uh, religious writers writing in science fiction, because I think they can ask questions that don't occur to me and I can ask questions that aren't occurring to them. And I think, Together, we can help each other grow in empathy 
in imagination a lot better than we would by ourselves. You briefly touched on Catholic reads and this, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, what that is in a nutshell and why you created it? So Catholic reads is a website and an email newsletter. Uh, it's the website is a database of Catholic literature of all genres. It's all like book reviews and such. The thing is, we read every single book submitted to us, and we do not accept a book for writing a review unless we can write a positive review, uh, and unless like it passes muster on like editing and being authentic to Catholic Orthodox um, theology. In Catholic publishing, there's a lot of great resources for nonfiction books. Less for fiction, there there are more. There are some, and I'm I'm always happy to champion them. Um, but most Catholic authors have to self-publish, which means you have this big thing and it's hard to find them. And you don't, when you find them, you don't know if they've been edited or if they're any good at all. So we, we provide that vetting. Like any book on our website, I can confidently uh, recommend. Of course, you're going to have a range of like good to great within that, but that's, that's the service we provide. And then we have an email newsletter where you get a book a week uh, marked down 50% off to free. So that it'll be like a dollar. And that's a really nice, easy, budget-friendly way to educate yourself about what's out there and to find books in the genre that you're already a fan of and to find authors that, that, that you want to support and that are good for you and your family and your kids. And we do every genre. And I mean every genre. I mean any little weird thing you can think of. Cyberpunk romance. We do have cyberpunk romance, yes. But I would t also t char characterize that one as a lit RPG, the one that pops in my head. It's killing me, the title. And then also uh, Colleen Drip did a really cool four-way into cyberpunk with... Oh, here, I have the book on my bookshelf. Let me grab it. All right, so this is more cyberpunk romance. It's a little more lit RPG cyberpunk. It's The City in the Dungeon by Matthew P. Schmidt. And a boy enters a video game, or like the video game enters the world, and he enters that to make money for his family, and ends up almost being like Brideshead Revisited, and he kind of finds love and uh, God and meaning through that. And then this one, uh, God Country, the main character is a kind of a cyber slave that got freed, but he was so conditioned to serve the company that enslaved him. And he has memories of an education and a childhood that aren't real. You know, they were put into his brain, but they're real to him. And he has to grapple with that. That's God Country by Colleen Drip. And she also had a really uh, character in a, a couple of other, her Star Brothers books. It was like a post-human who was um, finding God. Wow. Lots of romance in, in God Country, though. So, yeah. Wow. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar, could you explain what a lit RPG is? Uh, lit RPG takes the mechanics of video games and role-playing games and merges it with literature. So the big hit that came out was Ready Player One, that film and book. That's lit RPG. And in City in the Dungeon, uh, it's mechanics of D&D &D that are at play. Tabletop Dungeons and Dragons going old school. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And what's really cool about Matthew Schmidt is he, 
he plays on this understanding that a lot of characters have that a lot of what happens, the mechanics of the world they're interacting with are determined by chance, by the roll of the die, if you will. But then as they delve deeper into the dungeon, they start to realize that there is a greater power at play, both within the dungeon and, and perhaps within reality. I think that actually serves as an amazing segue into your rolling the dice of fate, my friend. Oh. <laughs> so we have come to that time where we are going to have a rando round, and I have no idea what questions you're going to end up with. So there's a hundred questions on the sheet in front of me. I have percentile dice that are, yes, used in role-playing games. Yes, yes. And so would you like tie-dye dice or pink with sparkles tie -dye. to decide your fate? Tie-dye. All right, a girl after my own heart. And uh, I'm going to roll and we're going to see which one of these questions we end up with. And I wrote these over-caffeinated, so they should be good. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. Let's see what the first question is. Who has been the kindest to you in your life? Hmm. Well, I can't mention anyone in my family because then the other ones will be like, hey, what about me? Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do have a, a very wonderful family that, um, that I'm very grateful for. Um, let's say right now, just to, well, that's, it's not quite like my entire life, but right now, uh, my husband has been amazing. We moved to Korea two years ago and, uh, got a house. And like a week after we got the house, we were living in suitcases, no furniture. We had, we had a baby <laughs> in a Korean hospital. And, um, and then just as I was starting to heal from the labor, the pandemic hit, uh, and shut everything down and I couldn't go out. Um, and he has been so supportive of me personally and my work. Uh, so many days that I've been like, Oh, I'm really behind with work or writing. Can you watch the baby for a bit and let me catch up? And he's, he's done that and he's been there. He sounds like a keeper. I think so. I think so. All right, I'm going to roll again. If you were a flavor of ice cream, what flavor would you be? Um, I don't know if this, this is what popped in my head. I don't know if this is a flavor, but chocolate with Pop Rocks. Chocolate because uh, it's great and it's fun. It's my favorite. <laughs> and Pop Rocks because there's just a little bit of weirdness in there. <laughs> That's awesome. You got to keep it weird. All right. I know the answer to this question. It's do you garden? So much. <laughs> oh my goodness, so much. Uh, so we've been living in apartments. It's the first house we've gotten. So that as soon as I saw the place, I was like, I have plans for this yard. And the pandemic certainly helped because it's not like I could go anywhere for the first couple months of that. But yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, I post monthly updates on my plant babies. Do you grow the vine? No, I grow moody grass and roses and lavender. We got a ton of marigolds right now um, and some mums. Um, but I think my, I've been struggling with um, hydrangea. Usually I'm 
can get hydrangea to grow, but getting stuff to grow in a different country is a different, different beast. And hydrangea are native to Korea, so you would think they would do great, but hmm. oh well. Maybe next year, maybe after a year of getting their roots set. Well, and they do say that that first year of observation is what teaches you so many things in the garden. Mm-hmm. So, and it and it never stops. That's no, the thing I've learned in gardening is you never stop learning. And you don't know what the weeds are when you move to another country. There was this plant. I was like, oh, this is a really cute little grass. I love the structure of it. I'll let it grow. And now I'm like, oh my God, kill it with fire. Nothing dies. It spreads everywhere. It takes everything. I've I've encountered a couple weeds like that myself. That mm. you're like, oh, look at the pretty flowers. Oh my gosh, this thing makes thorns that never go away. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can't even read my own handwriting. Oh, what would you say is your most joyful childhood memory? Well, we we're just talking about gardening, so I think of like gardening with my mom. Oh, that was something we could do. We did together growing up. It was really nice. Now I remember playing with dinosaurs and Barbies with my little brother in the back garden. She had one little plot that she was like, okay, I'm not going to plant anything. So you guys can just tear it up (laughs) for your own enjoyment, which is quite considerate of her. (laughs) So we had our own little mud pit. Because who doesn't love mud? Yeah. (laughs) It, It, that's the thing about being a kid that you realize when you have kids is that really all kids need is mud and sticks. And mm-hmm. and if they have some boxes, then you're like really golden. Mm-hmm. I think the last question I have for you today is something that I think I'd like to ask all of my guests. And that's what gives you hope right now? Living abroad in the pandemic has been hard, but it's also been incredibly hopeful. So Korea was actually one of the first countries to get the COVID virus. And so I could see it coming to the West, like a t- like a slow tidal wave. No one believed, oh, it won't, it won't reach here. We've got a good ocean between us. And that was really hard. But also, uh, Korea's done really well with the pandemic. And, and it's also given me an opportunity to meet people from other countries as well. And I think that these past few years have been hard for everyone. But living abroad has, rem- it, it's a constant reminder that my problem and the problems my community are the problems of my community. And it is not the whole world. The whole world is not like that. There are places where that those problems aren't even a flip on the screen. Just remembering that that your problems, whatever's stressing you out, it is not the whole picture. And I think living abroad, you that is constantly with you. You're out of your bubble. It, it comes with some stresses, but it's, it's also quite freeing. Kind of comes full circle with that recurring thing that you noticed in your books mm-hmm. of that you're going to face struggles, but that there's blessings that you can't yet see. Yeah. It's, it's, I write about it because I need to write about it. I need to remember that. Maybe you write about it because we all need to remember that. Well, ARK, Our time together has flown by, and I have really enjoyed this conversation with you and having the opportunity to have my mind open to new ideas about science fiction, which is a genre I had read off and on 
throughout my life, but really tackling some deeper tensions within the genre has been fascinating. And I learned that there is such a thing as cyberpunk RPG romance. (laughs) Mind blown. Oh, yeah. I want to thank you heartily for coming and having this conversation with me and with our listeners to just get to know you a little bit better and see some fiction that can really open their mind to some new perspectives. Thank you. This has been fun. It was a pleasure to share this time with ARK Watson. Her exploration of ideas through a questioning mind and a faith-filled heart is fascinating. Her novel, The Vines of Mars, is on sale on Amazon starting November 1st. You can find her work and updates at arkwatson.com or follow her on Instagram at arkwatson. Be sure to check out catholicreads.com to find many other works mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.